Good morning, and welcome to Sunday Morning Inspiration. I'm Graham Stewart from Christian Fellowship Church, and I'd like to invite you to stay tuned for the next 30 minutes to this program of music and inspiration. This morning I'll be talking to you about apologetics, and just in case you're wondering, apologetics has nothing to do with apologizing. To explain what exactly apologetics is, let's begin by turning to the Bible. In 1 Peter 3.15 we read, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. We're going to focus on the word defense. Some translations use the word answer. Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. This word, defense or answer, comes from the Greek word apologia, which means a legal defense or a reasoned statement or argument. So basically, apologetics means giving a defense for your faith. When you tell someone the reason for your faith, the reason why you believe what you believe, you are giving an apologetic. So why study apologetics? Some people are content saying, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. But it's important to have an understanding of what you believe. There are people out there who are very critical of Christianity and will challenge your beliefs, asking if you really believe the things you do. You might be asked, how can you possibly believe the Bible? It's just a book of myths and legends. Or someone might claim Jesus was just a wise man or he was just a religious leader. He wasn't God. What would you say? And not every person who questions your beliefs will do it out of hostility or a critical spirit. People will come to you with genuine questions about life and about your faith. Will you be ready to give them a satisfactory answer? If a friend or co-worker came to you and asked, How do you know the Bible is true? Or, Isn't the Bible full of contradictions? How would you respond? Or if they asked if you think a particular miracle really happened, like Jesus feeding a crowd of 5,000 people, what would your answer be? And beyond the questions of other people, we should know for ourselves why we believe. We should have full confidence that what we believe is actually true. If you're presented with a difficult question, or if you begin to doubt, you should be able to look at the Word of God and know for sure that it is true. You should be able to look at your faith and know with certainty that you can stand on it, and that there is a good reason for your faith in Jesus. My youth group at Christian Fellowship Church is right in the middle of a study of apologetics. It's especially important for young people to understand the reasons for what they believe. Every one of them will have their faith challenged, and of course that goes for all of us, but many of them will be going to university in the next few years. College campuses are home to atheist professors and students, many of whom will openly challenge or belittle the Christian faith. Students are presented with many different ideas and philosophies, and in that environment, if you aren't careful, your faith can start to feel irrational. Statistics say the majority of teenagers who enter adulthood professing to be Christians will lose their faith within 10 years. That's more than half of them. And the number one reason young adults leave their faith is intellectual skepticism. They become skeptical of their faith, they begin to doubt what they believe, and eventually they conclude that their beliefs aren't actually true. This is why we need to equip ourselves and our young people with apologetics. The Christian faith is not groundless, and we need to understand why. Now, before we move on, we'll take a short break and listen to a song. This is Jesus by Chris Tomlin, and right after that, we'll take a deeper look at some apologetics. There is a truth older than the ages. There is a promise of things yet to come. There is one born for our salvation 
Sunday Morning Inspiration, a program that airs at this time every Sunday on East Coast FM. And in case you're just joining us, we're glad you tuned in. Today I'm talking about apologetics, that is, giving a defense of your faith, giving the reasons for your faith and what you believe. We talked earlier about the importance of understanding why you believe what you believe. People will challenge your faith, people will be curious about your faith, and will want to know more about the hope that is in you. And knowing why we believe what we do is vital to overcoming doubt and keeping your faith strong. Right now I want to take a look at the Bible. 
Is it reliable? And is it historically accurate? As Christians, we base our faith on what this book says, and we should have some assurance that what it says is true. First, we'll look at how well it has been preserved over time. How reliable a copy of an ancient document is depends on two things, how old it is, and how many other copies are available for comparison. The older it is, the closer it is to the original, and the less time there was for changes to be made in the copying process. And the more copies available, the more comparisons that can be made to see if there are discrepancies. One of the best preserved ancient works is the Iliad by Homer, written in 900 BC. There are over 600 copies, and the oldest is thought to have been written 500 years after the original. But the New Testament has far more evidence than this or any other Greek or Latin literature. Instead of dozens or hundreds of copies, there are over 24,000, and the oldest of them is thought to have been written just 25 years after the original. That's so old, that particular section would have been in use before the New Testament was even completed. Comparing the different versions of the Iliad and the New Testament, it's clear that the New Testament has been much better preserved. 764 lines in the Iliad are disputed, or about 5% of the whole book. Only 40 lines of the New Testament are disputed, or about one-half of a percent, and the good news is that no fundamental doctrine in the Christian faith would be changed based on one of those 40 uncertain lines. This gives us evidence that the Bible has been well-preserved, but it doesn't tell us if it's true. Archaeology provides evidence of the Bible's claims, such as buildings and structures found in ancient cities just as the Bible describes them. Millstones are found in the ancient city of Capernaum. So many have been uncovered that they probably built them for export. This is where Jesus was when he made two references to millstones in Luke 17. The book of John mentions the pools of Siloam and Bethesda, and both of these have been found, just as the Bible describes them. The Bible says that around the time Jesus was born, the Roman Empire conducted a census that required everyone to return to his hometown. If you think back to the Christmas story, Joseph had to go to Bethlehem with Mary to be registered, and that's where Jesus was born. Archaeological discoveries show that the Romans conducted a census every 14 years. A document found in Egypt gives instructions for how to conduct the census, saying, It is necessary that all those residing away from their homes should at once prepare to return to their own governments, in order that they may complete the family registration. The Bible also makes many prophecies or predictions. Let's look at one of these and see if there is any historical evidence for it. Ezekiel 26 was written around 588 BC. It makes several prophecies about the city of Tyre. This is what it says. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. From the north I will bring King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon against Tyre. He will destroy your mainland villages. Now just three years after this prophecy, Nebuchadnezzar began a 13-year siege of the city. The mainland city was destroyed, but many people escaped to a fortified city on an island half a mile off the shore. Ezekiel goes on to say, They will destroy your lovely homes and dump your stones and timbers and even your dust into the sea. This island city remained and prospered for hundreds of years. In 332 BC, Alexander the Great used the rubble of mainland Tyre to build a causeway to the island as a part of his attack against the city. Finally, Ezekiel says, I will make your island a bare rock, a place for fishermen to spread their nets, you will never be rebuilt, for I the Lord have spoken. One history textbook is quoted as saying this, The site of the once great city is now bare as the top of a rock, a place where the fishermen who still frequent the spot spread their nets to dry. 
history tells us that this particular prophecy was fulfilled. The things that were predicted began to happen just a couple years after the prophecy was made, more events took place within a couple centuries, and some we can even see today in modern times. We can look to historical sources and verify that what the Bible said was actually true. We're going to take another short break now and listen to another song. This is Never Once by Matt Redman. Standing on this mountain top, looking just how far we've come, knowing that for every step you were with us, kneeling on this battleground, seeing just how much you've done, knowing every victory was your power in us. Scars and struggles on the way, but with joy our hearts can say, yes our hearts can say.
Welcome back to Sunday Morning Inspiration on East Coast FM, where today we are talking about apologetics, that is, giving an answer for your faith or knowing the reasons for what you believe. One of the biggest claims the Bible makes is that Jesus died on a cross and then came back to life. The resurrection is absolutely essential to Christianity. We worship a risen Lord, and if there's no resurrection, our faith is in a dead man who was powerless to save. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The Bible is very clear. The resurrection of Jesus happened, and our faith is worthless if it didn't. Jesus gathered a lot of followers in the three years leading up to his death. When he died, that should have been the end of his religious movement. But not long after, Christianity continued to spread rapidly. The early church faced extreme persecution. Christians were thrown in prison and killed for their faith, but the church continued to grow. What happened after Jesus' death that compelled so many not only to follow Jesus, but to suffer and die for their beliefs? They knew Jesus had come back to life. So let's see if we can support the conclusion that Jesus really did come back from the dead. We'll start by looking at his burial site for evidence of his resurrection. After he died, Jesus was buried in a tomb with a large stone covering the entrance. The stone would have been rolled into a deep groove dug in front of the tomb. Once in place, it would have been very hard to get it back out. Then a Roman seal was placed on the stone. This was a sign of authenticity, declaring that the tomb did indeed contain Jesus' body and that no one was to go near it. Finally, soldiers were stationed at the site of the tomb to keep people away from it during the Passover. It was to the advantage of both the Romans and the Jewish religious leaders to make sure Jesus stayed buried and prevent any ideas that he had come back to life. But on the third day, the tomb was empty. All four Gospels contain eyewitness accounts of women going to the tomb and finding it open and empty. This is an important fact because at that time, a woman's testimony was considered unreliable. They couldn't testify in court, and even the disciples expressed doubt at what they said. If someone was making up the stories we read in the Gospels, this would have been an unusual detail to include, claiming that men not women had made the discovery, would have been more convincing to the audience at that time. One idea that spread through the Roman Empire was that the disciples had stolen Jesus' body to fake the idea of his resurrection. In Matthew 28, we read that the religious leaders and the soldiers who were guarding the tomb agreed to tell people that the disciples had come to the tomb during the night and stolen the body while they were asleep. In the 2nd century AD, Justin Martyr wrote that Jewish authorities in Jerusalem sent messengers throughout the Mediterranean to spread the idea that disciples had stolen the body. But how was that even possible? These highly trained soldiers would never be found asleep on the job, and anyone trying to move that big stone could not have done so without making a lot of noise. And why would anyone suggest that the body had been stolen in the first place? Why would they bother if the tomb had never been opened, or the body's whereabouts were known? Historian Ron Sider wrote, if the Christians and their Jewish opponents both agreed that the tomb was empty, we have little choice but to accept the empty tomb as a historical fact. Going back to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul quotes an early church creed that was written within two years of Jesus' death. It says, Christ appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. When an author tells his audience not to take his word for it, go and ask the people who saw him for themselves, it's compelling historical evidence that many people saw Jesus and were still alive and able to verify it. And supposing someone was somehow able to steal the body from the tomb, who would have done it? 
and why. The Romans and the Jewish leaders wouldn't have done it. They wanted him to stay buried. If they had the body, they could have displayed it and easily ended any ideas of a resurrection. Only the disciples would have stolen it to hide it and fake the resurrection. But why would they do that? There was nothing in it for them. The early church faced extreme persecution. Christians were martyred for following Jesus and proclaiming his resurrection. All but one of the disciples was martyred, and not one of them ever admitted that it was a hoax or said where the body was hidden. They were so convinced of the truth of Jesus' resurrection, they were willing to die for it. People will die for something they believe to be true, but not for something they know to be a lie. And I'll finish with a quote from Chuck Colson, special counsel to Richard Nixon. He was involved in the Watergate scandal and converted to Christianity while he was in prison. This is what he said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because twelve men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, then they proclaimed that truth for forty years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled twelve of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me twelve apostles could keep alive for forty years? Absolutely impossible. We're going to listen to another song now. This is Yours Forever by Darlene Zeschek and Carrie Job. I'll be back right after this.
to Sunday Morning Inspiration. Today we've been talking about apologetics, giving a defense for your faith. I don't believe God requires us to have blind faith. He wants us to love him with all our hearts and all our minds. That's our intellect. Our faith should be consistent with the evidence we find. And it's reassuring when a historical event in the Bible lines up with available evidence, or when some archaeological discovery gives more credibility to a biblical claim. But none of that is the reason I believe. Apologetics is more than mere facts and arguments. I didn't weigh all the historical and archaeological evidence and decide Christianity was true and become a believer. I built my life on the Word of God and have found it to be true time after time. I accepted Jesus as my Savior, and now I know I've been forgiven. I can see how God changed me and made me a new person. And that might be the greatest apologetic of all, your own story. When God comes into your life, we find freedom, forgiveness, and true joy. And when we experience his love, we should want to share that love by showing forgiveness and serving others. What could be a better defense for your faith than your own experience with God? What has God done in your life? The Bible says that in Christ, we are a new creation. How has he changed you? You've been listening to Sunday Morning Inspiration, a radio program that airs every week at this time on East Coast FM. And it's brought to you by four Pictou County churches, the Church of the Nazarene on the corner of Duke and Main Streets in Trenton, First United Baptist Church on East River Road in New Glasgow, Freedom Bible Church in Thorburn, and Christian Fellowship Church on Abercrombie Road in New Glasgow. I'm Graham Stewart, one of the youth leaders at Christian Fellowship Church, where we are studying apologetics in depth every Sunday at 6 o'clock in the evening. All of our churches have morning services at 10.30, and you're welcome to attend any one of these churches, or of course any of the other churches in town that open on Sundays as well. Before we go, here is one more song. This is My Jesus, I Love You by Darlene Zeschek. Thank you for joining me today. I pray that God will bless you and that you would sense his love for you today.
Come on, we really need to lift Jesus higher. Let's shout. 